Welcome to another program in the Fleming Foundation series, From Under the Rubble. I'm Thomas Fleming, and with me today, as he is, it seems, always, and perhaps too often, Rex Scott. Hello, hello. Uh, We have a continuation of what we started last week, and that is 10 questions with Dr. Fleming. We got all the way to number three. So uh, these are... I kept it brief. Yes, you did. And I really appreciate that. I'm, I'm sure the listeners do as well. And remember, um, in this continuation, we're asking uh, you, the listener, to uh, email us a question or two if you have something on any topic. Of course, they don't know that because we haven't posted the previous podcast. Oh, that's right. Yes. But you'll get it soon. Thanks you for see, that. You see, if we were really on top of things, mm-hmm. we would have put it uh, an announcement on the website. <gasps> Yes, we have to do that. It, uh, I will do that today Terrific. when we quit jabbering. Yes, because uh, it is posted. We're just waiting for you to put it on the web. Okay. I did that this morning. Well, um, <clears throat> yeah, I got it. Yes, of course, I got up at 5 in order to make sure I could see that. All right, exactly. It was early. Um, okay, here's our first question today. What would you like to see accomplished with the Fleming Foundation? Well, I don't have grandiose dreams. Uh, When people ask this question, I usually uh, begin my response by saying that I've had one thought for 50 years, Mm -hmm. and that is that I didn't want to leave this world as dumb as the day on which I entered it. Oh. And by dumb, I don't mean uh, having a low IQ Mm -hmm. or even uh, necessarily being ignorant, because I read too many books as it is, Mm. but to try to understand the world we're living in and to understand and how to make the best use of it, Mm -hmm. we live uh, live in a difficult period of history, one one of the most difficult. I did a program some years ago, uh, the subtitle was Living Well in a Dying Age, mm-hmm. you know. So how how do we live well in what to many people seems the end times? Sure. So this has, this has many components. One is to have a realistic, honest appreciation of our political institutions, traditions, what is actually going on. Mm-hmm. Most of what you read in, say, a college or high school textbook, everything you hear from every politician or everybody in the media is either a complete self-deceiving idiocy or a deliberate lie. Yep. So you get, so I, I note that they have all these interview shows, you know, mm-hmm. Face the Nation, Meet the Press, and right. all, all these things, which, of course, I'm, now I'm referring to shows that were on the air 50 years ago. But, uh, and it, distinguished statesmen or leader, political leaders uh, come before the cameras and they're asked questions and they sit there and lie and lie and lie. They never give an honest answer. They can't give an honest answer. Hmm. So there's no point to such programs. If you want to understand the, the way the world works, then you have to sit up and pay attention. Mm-hmm. And there are certain universal rules, and those rules were uh, perhaps best understood by uh, Niccolo Machiavelli and mm. his students. So, an, uh, so part one, that's why we call this podcast From Under the Rubble, the, an honest acknowledgement that we're not living in a high civilization and mm-hmm. we're not living in a free republic. Those days are long gone. They were gone before I was born. Mm. And so we are living in the ruins. And uh, we're like, 
you know, imagine there's been a terrible war, catastrophic war and invasion. The Germans have destroyed Rome. Mm. And then the peasants move in from the hills and squat down by the Tiber, drinking the muddy water and looking at the temples in amazement. Mm. That's sort of uh, the, that's the reality of the world we live in. Sure. So the next, uh, the, another aspect of this is to, well, what are those temples? You know that we're looking around at in the ruins. Okay. And by the way, this image of the ruins. This is why we have two, uh, a couple of pillars from the Temple of the Castors. That's our uh, the symbol of our logo, foundation. Our it's our logo. logo. It's yeah. the they're the ruins of a temple in the Roman Forum. Hmm. And uh, and it's interesting that the gods to whom the temple is dedicated were Greek gods, not Roman gods, because there's there's a continuity from the Greeks to the Romans, from the Romans to the, to the Christian age, which mm-hmm. most people call the Dark Age or the Middle Ages, uh, from that to, to the Renaissance, to our own world. There, there is a, there's a continuity. And to understand that, to, to, be, uh, to be a civilized human being, that is somebody who can appreciate the best things that exist in our world, mm-hmm. uh, it used to be believed, and it, was, and it is still true, that's something like a classical education uh, a study of Greek and Latin, a study of the cl- ancient classics. Mm-hmm. This is what binds us together. This is what makes us, say, an American today reading Virgil is uh, can shake hands with Shakespeare and Dante and uh, with Virgil himself across the ages because we have this common civilization. We have allowed public school teachers who are among the most cretinous and ignorant people in our world mm. Uh, we've allowed them to cut us off from the past. This means that if you're a high school, a college graduate from an Ivy League university, you probably know nothing about anything. Hmm. As I was reading the book of Jonah today with uh, with my wife, because mm-hmm. it's a very short uh, short book, but at the very end of the book of Jonah, you know, Jonah has he, Jonah has been uh, defied God. He won't go and preach to the Ninevites. Yep. Then he's swallowed by the great fish, fish. and he ends up in uh, in Nineveh. And God says, "You go preach to them. Mm-hmm. Go tell them they're going to get it." So he preaches repentance. You know, you people are evil, and then he's really mad because they've repented. <laughs> so God says, "You think you're right to 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 repent? I mean, to be mad? Well, what, what, what does this have to do with you?" So then he goes and sits outside town under a gourd plant, yes. which is sheltering him. And then, so God causes the, the gourd plant to wither, or right. you know, a worm gets into it, it's, it's destroyed. And so now Jonah starts grousing about the gourd plant because the sun is beating down on him. And so the Lord comes and says, well, look, you, 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 <laughs> you didn't make this gourd plant. You're complaining about it, but a city of 120,000 people you wanted that destroyed with uh, all the people and animals in it? And then he says, hmm. people who don't know their right hand from their left hand. Hmm. Okay, well, that is the condition of people who go through American education. They don't know their right hand from their left hand. There are some coarser expressions used here in middle yeah. America, uh, which involve a hole in the ground. Yes. So that hmm. that essentially... <laughs> If you, I noticed this when I was teaching at uh, Miami University when I was a young man, and um, I was teaching a course on Cicero's letters. Okay. And Cicero's letters are charming. They're very, uh, they're very colloquial, and they're very witty. They're very funny. But they're also Cicero's hard-boiled 
personal outlook on the political scene as it's passing by. Right. And I had a, a student <clears throat> who went off to law school the next year, and uh, he was a political science major. And he said, I have learned more about politics from reading Cicero's letters and then studying the people he's talking about, people like Julius Caesar, Marcus Crassus, Pompey the Great. I've learned more about politics in this one semester than in all four years of college. Hmm. Now, why? Because we're dealing with a shrewd, hard-headed, honest, brilliant person. So one of the many things that uh, being in contact, not just with the Greek and Latin classics, but with the French and Italian and English classics, mm-hmm. Russian classics, German classics, with this, by acquainting ourselves with the really smart and honest people, the people with a lot of insight, and by disciplining ourselves and honing our minds to this, we will not die stupid. Well, that's reasonable, I guess. Now, you said something about continuity and also... Uh, in in the question of continuity, Cicero, do you believe that Cicero was dealing with the same sorts of things that we are dealing with today? You know, the lies, yeah. the half-truths. Is that part of that continuity that you were talking about, that use that word continuity? Yeah. The human nature is uh, the basics, the fundamentals are unchanging. Obviously, different cultures make a lot of difference. Sure. That is certainly true. Race, religion, ethnicity, cultural traditions, they're all important. But when you get down to, as T.S. Eliot says, the brass tacks, mm-hmm. it's birth, copulation, and death, mm. you know, the, the fundamentals of seeking prestige, property, wealth, women, honor, Right. Uh, and the devices used, if you the if you read the Old Testament, for example, you get a you get a portrait of some pretty rotten people engaged in pretty rotten activities. That's true. And a lot of it's sort of incoherently written. I hate to be the one to have to say that, but mm. uh, compared with with Greek and Latin literature, which is brilliantly and superbly written, but nonetheless. Uh, it is by acquainting ourselves with different historical periods and different cultural traditions, we begin to get closer and closer and closer to what you might call the common human. What okay. are the common elements in our nature? Now, the the Romans are a, an interesting people because we have, on the one hand, we have this picture of them as they're stately, they wear white, white robes, and they talk in grave accents. Yeah, right. On the other hand, uh, as one of my teachers once said, you know, they are Italians, uh, meaning okay. they are lively, yeah. they are uh, brilliant, they get a bang out of living, they got a great sense of humor, and I don't wish to offend any of my many, many Italian friends, as anyone who knows me is aware. Uh, I love Italy above all countries in the world and yeah. the Italian people above all people, but they can be pretty corrupt oh. and dishonest. Now, the Romans, their, their rules in a Roman law court, for example, or in, uh, were very loose compared to ours. The things you could say you could imply that the attorney on the other side uh, molested little boys. You could imply that the reason he had to take this case is because he went bankrupt, you know, doing X, Y, and Z. You could, and in a political campaign, you could say that your opponent was a cutthroat who had murdered innocent people in their beds, okay? So any any kind of proper, and sometimes really quite, brilliant 
abusive invective <laughs> was uh, was used. And if you really, uh, just to concentrate on this one little point a little bit, there's uh, during the very difficult period of the, of the late Republic, you know, there are all these massively gigantic personalities and egos involved, like Julius Caesar, and like Cicero himself, and like uh, Pompey the Great. And Cicero, in one of his letters, uh, he describes... Uh, Pompey's trying to uh, have a public speech to the to the, the assembly of the Roman people mm-hmm. because uh, he wants to get he wants his uh, his decisions that he made in conquering the Middle East. He wants them to be ratified by the Senate. He wants them to be put into law, and he wants land and pensions for his soldiers. Okay. So he's this is this, these are quite reasonable desires for the most successful conqueror in uh, Roman history. The way which is how Pompey was looked at at the time, <clears throat> and uh, instead, there's a thug in the working the audience. And the thug okay. is an aristocratic gangster named uh, Publius Clodius Pulcher. And the Clodii Pulcri were, or Claudii, to give it the correct pronunciation, they were a very ancient uh, uh, aristocratic family. Clodius himself, though, affected, you know, he's like, imagine a, a, a Rockefeller dressing in grunge and living in, uh, living in Seattle. Okay. So, uh, and he was, for a while, stooging for Julius Caesar and his friends, and but he was always operating for himself, so he's whipping the crowd up, you know, Who's, you know, they call him Pompeius Magnus, you know, Pompey the Great. I don't see, he's not that tall, you know, because Magnus means both tall and great. Okay. Or then he says, who's the, then he gets this rhythmic chant, you know, who's the guy who sold out all the, sold out all the common people? And then the crowd roars, Pompey. You know, <laughs> so you can start imagining this scene. This is this is some kind of I don't brilliant Fellini movie about politics, and so the machinations of Roman politics are really something uh, marvelous to behold, and this is not for me a major reason for studying uh, Greek and Latin literature, but it it is a benefit that uh, they are so much more honest than we are. We, we try to pretend that we have a world full of statesmen and who go to each other's funerals. And, you know, the, the reason they hate Donald Trump is because Trump is much too honest to be in politics. By honest, <laughs> I, I don't mean he tells the truth. I mean, he, he's frank. Yes. He says what's on his mind. And that, rule number one, it's like the famous, uh, what is it, Sir Henry Wotton was once asked, to define what a, an ambassador was, what a diplomat was. This is in the 17th century. Okay. And he first he gave it in Latin, and then he, he put it into English. He's a man sent to lie abroad for his, for his country. In other words, now, and of course, you, it's a pun because, oh, do you mean to sleep in foreign places? No, no, it's mentiendum in Latin, to tell lies. So he's a paid liar. Wow. You, know, you ever met an FBI agent? I, I know some FBI agents. They're pretty good guys. But what, what do they spend their lives doing? Pretending to be some, somebody they're not, snookering people, mm. cheating them, lying them. It is not a, it is, being a spy is not a respectable profession. There's this fellow with an Irish name, O'Keefe. He runs around pretending to be a procurer of young girls or to do this or to do that or arranging welfare. And so he goes and talks to left-wingers, and he records them telling all these terrible truths about what they, what they want to do and what they're trying to do. Mm-hmm. Now, the thing is, this is very funny. 
And when they put it on the Drudge Report, everybody says, oh, another masterpiece for O'Keefe. This is great. Yeah, but he took this like 17 year old girl around pretending that she was his pro she was a prostitute and he was going to sell her to dirty old men okay they didn't do it but the point is you don't do that this is this is simply not a decent respectable thing to do and these people are disgusting yes you know they said well somebody's got to do it well somebody's got to be the executioner too right. somebody's got to clean the, the latrine too but these are not things that you would choose to do if you had uh, an alternative so anyway so the, the just to, to sum up and yeah. to, so we could get off this topic what we what we see in one of the things we see in greek and roman literature and during the renaissance is a remarkable candor and therefore, we get a deep insight both into human nature, into politics, and into social life. And we also see how very civilized societies did things quite different from the way we do them. To, for people to have this kind of knowledge, mm -hmm. like, you know, a college student understand this, he would laugh at his professors, he'd laugh at the politicians, he'd laugh at the media, he would be a free-thinking, independent person, and nothing could be more dangerous to this despotic regime than to have even 5,000 such people. Mm. So what you ask what we hope to do politically is to wise people up. Nice. Very nice. This year, uh, in the Summer Symposium, we will be talking and learning about Cicero. Is that the reason uh, you chose Cicero this year? Because of his, his great impact on society and has, still has an impact if people would know about Cicero? Yeah. Certainly, if you had to pick from the history of our civilization— going back, and even if we want to go back as far as ancient Egypt and the Babylonians, Cicero would be on any short list of the most influential people, and not just influential in the, in the uh, Adolf Hitler was an influential person since, yes. but in, in, influential for good. And his influence is in many respects. We've been talking a little bit about political realism. Now, Cicero lied as much as anybody has ever lied in politics <laughs> because he had to. It's part of the business. Sure. And so you can read a speech of Cicero, for example, in which he, he goes on and on and on on some subject. And then you read a letter he writes two days later, and the two don't always agree uh, oh. entirely because, you know, Cicero's got an agenda. Now, he's a statesman. The difference between a politician and a statesman, here's how I define it. Uh, a politician is somebody who works on his own account. The point is to get elected so and to, to get elected to higher and higher office mm -hmm. so you can get more and more loot from but in the form of bribes Let's and extortion see. and corruption. Okay. Whereas a statesman may take bribes. A statesman may do favors. A statesman may tell lie after lie after lie when it serves his purpose. But his ultimate purpose is to serve the commonwealth. Mm. That is to, to increase the security, prosperity, and collective happiness of the people. And so he is like, and he may have to change his mind. He may have to change sides. Sure. But he's like uh, a captain of a ship, you know, a sailing ship. You know, right. you don't have a motor. 
you have the wind. And when the winds are blowing against you, you have to veer off and tack, you know, so you could only sail like 30% in the direction you want to go. But then when you have a favoring wind from behind, then you can then you can go full speed ahead. The point is that the, the, the captain and his pilot, they have to they have to read the currents, they have to read the winds, they have to take account of all of these things yes. in order to try to keep the ship somewhat on course. And that's what a statesman does. He can't be just a political idealist who says, you know, whatever I want is what we're going to do, and I'm going to abolish marriage, and I'm going to make, I'm going to make us, uh, you know, stand on, stand on our hands and manipulate things with our feet. The, you know, these are the kind of things you get from the Harvard philosophy faculty. Okay. So a statesman, no matter how much he lies, cheats, steals, swindles, and snookers, he has an objective. So Cicero is that kind of objective. But, you know, Cicero is also uh, you know, uh, an amateur philosopher mm-hmm. who translated Greek philosophical concepts into Latin, and those concepts are still alive today. One of the most important being the whole idea of natural law sure. is, uh, comes from the Greeks, but Cicero is the, is the most important transmitter of this idea that behind all the particular laws of different nations, there are there is a law put into nature by God, mm-hmm. so that and, and that in, that is the that gives the truth and the force to all the little laws that 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 we end up obeying. But he was also a master of rhetoric, and rhetoric is perhaps the most important forgotten art in the modern world. It is the art of persuasion, the art of getting people to agree with you without putting a gun to their head. And this involves logic. It involves various techniques of persuasion. It involves how you put a speech together. It's a very serious and high art, which many learned professions require. To be a teacher, you should be a good rhetorician. To be a preacher, you need this. To be a salesman, you need this. Sure. So any time you're trying to persuade people, and there used to be a very well-developed art and science called rhetoric. Cicero is one of the three or four great masters of this rhetoric, maybe the most important. He wrote a number of important books, the De Oratore, the De Invenzione, all of these works constitute a great body on this this technique and and if if people would study this technique that we we our newspapers wouldn't read like childish drivel right so uh, for all of these and he's, and he lived through a very important period of history mm-hmm. in which a corrupt republic was falling apart and the question was who was going to pick it up and put it put the pieces together mm-hmm. and the roman empire which emerged out of this in its first 200 years, was an amazingly effective political institution that preserved much of what was good in the Roman Republic, while at the same time cleaning it up, making it less corrupt, less dishonest, less abusive. So for all of these reasons, and Cicero, of course, since he died, there has never been a period in which uh, he has not been exercising a strong influence. He was read throughout antiquity. So his, his most important works were read throughout the Middle Ages. Mm. And, and the rediscovery of, of Cicero's letters and some of his other works was a major event of the, of the Renaissance. 
Petrarch uh, got his uh, the the great uh, uh, poet in both Latin and uh, Italian. Mm-hmm. Petrarch uh, got a hold of Cicero's letters, and this was an incredible breakthrough. I think probably of all the writers of antiquity, Cicero had the most influence on the Italian Renaissance, and 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 as it spread to France and the Netherlands and England. I see. So we will spend several days learning about Cicero yeah. and this uh, this rhetoric. Yeah. Maybe even learning a little bit of how that works as well. Huh? Yeah, I've thought about maybe giving a like a one hour workshop uh, oh, uh, at some point because I was once teaching at what they call a traditional black college, and the president, the person running the college. Uh, asked me there to help students uh, learn how to write, and so I actually sketched out a writing program based on because I've taught I've taught rhetoric, mm-hmm. and uh, really it I call it non-creative writing. Everybody wants to teach creative writing. Well, how many people are going to make a living as uh, poets and novelists and screenwriters? Not many. It's like it's like how many people are going to be an NBA star? Yeah, or a so, rock and roll star. Yeah, or a rock and roll star. And whereas yeah. non-creative writing is something that a hundred percent of mankind needs to know to be able to do to write a, a job letter. Are we talking to, about writing facts? Or are we talking about writing truth? Writing to get what you want out of other people, oh. frankly. And so the point is, though, that rhetoric, the techniques of rhetoric are used by historians. Okay. They're used by novelists and poets. In fact, uh, too much by poets if you're in the, in the French tradition. What you need to, people need to do is to learn how to communicate with their fellow human beings so that if you're asked at a men's club to stand or at a funeral to stand up and give a speech, you know how to do it. There are right. rules. There, there are, are there are cut and dried rules. It's... And it, you don't have to be an inspired genius to be successful at this. You, you could follow the rules. We're going to take a sharp curve here, and we're going to ask another question. I hope this one's more interesting than the first two. Oh, well. Okay, <laughs> thanks for that. We understand that you understand different languages. I was thinking about Greek, and I was thinking about the Bible. If we all learned Greek, we would probably have a better understanding of what the Bible is trying to communicate. So my question is, how has Greek changed the way you understand the Bible? Yeah. The, uh, let's talk just specifically about the New Testament, because the story is a little complicated for the old. I'll give you, give you 10 seconds. Most of the Old Testament that uh, is read is written in either Hebrew, the old language of the Jewish people, or another Semitic language called Aramaic, which developed in the part of the world now known as Syria, roughly. And it became, as they say, the lingua franca, the universal trade language in the Middle East. And eventually, by the time, although there's a lot of argument about this among Israeli scholars, it would seem that at the time of Jesus, nobody spoke Hebrew, really, they spoke Aramaic. Aramaic. So it's a Syriac language, essentially. So there are some scriptures, which there's a dispute about, that only exist in Greek form in the Old Testament. Hmm. And these are mostly the so-called apocrypha, um, I don't like the term apocrypha. These these were the books selected by the seventy rabbis during the Alexandrian period, and they were. It is really the first version of the Bible we have, much older than the than the Jewish text of the Bible or anything else. But when you get to the New Testament, we don't have anything earlier than a Greek text. There are theories 
that uh, some of the parts of the New Testament are translations from Aramaic. For Mm -hmm. example, it is sometimes believed that Paul's epistle to the Hebrews, one of the reasons that it could be stylistically different from the rest of Paul is that uh, he wrote it, he wrote it in Aramaic and that it then uh, got translated by somebody else. But Hmm. all, but that's conjecture. All we have is Greek. And so fundamentally, if somebody really woke up one day at the age of 20 and said, the most important thing to me is to understand uh, the, 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 the scriptures of the New Testament, which tell us the life of Jesus Christ and tell us uh, the, the doings of his apostles, mm-hmm. and then tell us the, the preaching of his apostles, Peter and Paul and James and Jude sure. and John. And uh, so, uh, well, what, what would you do? What would be the best thing? Well, learning Greek, that would be the, the, the single most important thing it could, you could do. Well, what if you're going to be a preacher? Is there anything more valuable you could learn than Greek? If, you, if your object is not simply to repeat what your denomination or some, uh, some teacher has told you, is there anything more important than learning Greek? Not, not really. Then why don't they teach it anymore in high school and in seminaries? Why is it not one uh, in any denomination in America, Protestant or Catholic, why is it that you almost never meet somebody who is has even passable Greek, uh, and you just have to ask the seven? They don't care. They don't. The, 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 they call it the Word of God, but they can't read it. Mm. And because they're taking courses on church finances, they're taking courses on counseling, they're taking courses in psychology and everything else, or uh, or how to how to misinterpret the Bible. But uh, the basic the basic reality is that uh, it's 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 written in Greek. No language can be translated into another language. Mm. Greek and Latin are closer than most because of their their parallel thought structures, and Latin developed in response to to to, to Greek. But uh, Latin, it's better to read uh, the New Testament in Latin than it is to read it in English because mm-hmm. uh, it, they did a, a good job on it. But really, there are there are concepts and, and clusters of association and meaning in in Greek, which uh, are not there in any other language, and and they prevent you from making the kind of grotesque mistakes I hear every time I hear uh, some American pastor or priest uh, do a sermon mm-hmm. in which he quotes the Bible. Is the uh, translation from Greek so drastic? If I went and studied Greek for the next 10 years, I would be astounded at the meanings of things versus my English translation. Let's put it this way. If you're Catholic or Orthodox, it makes it somewhat less important because you understand that when our Lord left us, he did not say, I'm leaving you a book because the book didn't exist. There was no New Testament. But he said, I have to go away so that the Holy Spirit can come and basically remind you about everything I've taught and clarify everything that you're incapable of understanding. Now, there's things I can't tell you. So the Holy Spirit, it was believed, entered the church at Pentecost, 
the Holy Spirit existed before time, but it enters human history actively, not just sporadically, at Pentecost, and it takes the concrete form of the church, or the Christian church, hmm. which uh, then divided into East and West, unfortunately. Most Protestant churches don't believe this. You take something like uh, a difficult book like Revelations. In the early church, there were people who didn't want it because it's a little wacky and they thought maybe it was a heretical book. The Catholic and Orthodox position is they accepted it for certain reasons. We know what those reasons are because we know what people said about it at the time before and after. And so what the church has taught about revelations, in accepting revelations as scripture, that's, it means what they said it meant. Okay. Whereas today, any any yokel from Nebraska can pick up a bad translation and decide that he's the prophet sent by God and he's going to be uh, yeah. calling down uh, fire and brimstone on an unbelieving world. And so if you have a tradition and accept the tradition, even if the tradition is wrong about a single passage— yeah. What it says is right. Now, St. Augustine, you know, uh, writing in the, you know, around 400 AD, Augustine says there are two ways of approaching Scripture. One is a literalistic way, and the other is to try to f a more allegorical, metaphorical way. But he said the real test of an interpretation is how well does it strengthen your understanding and application of the fundamentals of Christianity? What mm -hmm. is the fundamentals of Christianity? Well, our Lord was asked. He said, you know, he said, you follow the commandments? Well, what is the greatest commandments? Well, the first and greatest commandment is thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, okay. etc. And the second is like unto it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Now, so let's say you have a passage of scripture. This says that literally God told the children of Israel to go out and murder people because they didn't agree with them. Oh, boy. Well, does this teach you to love your neighbor as yourself? No. Then there, or what about somebody who says, I know something you don't know, and you're going to hell because you don't know that. <laughs> now, I know a lot of people, you know, that uh, some of my ultra-Calvinist friends, you know, somehow you were picked out beyond, be, before all time, either to be saved or damned, sure. and I know I'm saved, and I know you're not. Oh, boy. You know, it's the I'm Chevy Chase and you're not business. Right. Well, the thing is, does that, even if it were true, I'm going to stay away from whether it's true or not. Even if it's true, if that's your attitude, is that a good attitude to encourage? Not no. really, no. But so that's, can having we put this an application? I mean, yeah. like, for instance, you kept in using the word neighbor. Okay, yeah. that was, that's used several times. Love the neighbor as yourself, yeah. you know, that sort of thing. Um, what, what is about a neighbor? That? Yeah, exactly. That's, we've discussed that once or twice, yeah. but um, I think that's a really good application of the Greek versus the yeah, it, English it, translation. It is, because, first of all, there are both in the... Old Testament and in the New Testament, mm -hmm. there are various expressions and various injunctions about what a neighbor is and how to treat a neighbor. Okay. In Hebrew, there are two different words. One of the words means he who lives next door to you. Okay. He who lives in the neighborhood. So Actually, our word, our word neighbor is German Nachbar, the nigh dweller, the person who dwells nigh. Okay. Uh, nach, nigh, uh, same word. And this comes, this is preserved very accurately in Greek. So there's, there's neighbor on the one hand, then the, the person who lives next to you. And then there's another word, which means those to whom you are morally connected. Oh. For a Jew, 
you were morally connected a most co- to your to your intimate family family b your extended kinfolk okay c your friends and fellow tribes jewish tribesmen okay and ultimately all jews what about gentiles no no. Not so much Gentiles. Not at all. According to the word neighbor, you really have no responsibility to them at all? It's You have responsibilities that are defined. You're not supposed to rob them, etc. But okay. unless they're the in the base. process of becoming a Jew. Mm-hmm. So the, the Old Testament is pretty clear, and the Talmudic tradition even clearer that, well, you're not supposed to commit adultery unless she's married to a Gentile. Oh, wow. You see, it's a, two-track, it's a two-track morality. So when the man learned it in the law, the, the Greek word is nomikos. When he says to Jesus, when Jesus says, well, uh, love thy neighbor, as I say, tell me, who is my neighbor? This uh, is a profound, loaded question. Ah. Uh, and that's what leads to the parable of the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan, the purpose of the story is not to tell us that we owe it to everybody around the world what we owe to our mother and father, Mm -hmm. but rather that the Jewish establishment has failed. It has failed because they don't even treat Jews as human beings. I see. You know, they they have no mercy, they have no charity. And the Samaritan, although an alien, a hated alien, acts with a human responsibility. Mm -hmm. So the point is, and I've gone through both Old and New Testament and, and tracked down Every use of the word neighbor. The Greek is very consistent in showing, and of course, then in in Greek, in the in the in the Septuagint version of the of the Old Testament, and then in the New Testament, and so these the it's totally different. For example, it says a, a when a woman finds her lost penny, what does mm-hmm. she do? She goes to the neighbors. Look, I found it. I found it. Mm-hmm. That is neighbor in the sense of somebody who lives near you. Okay, but love thy neighbor as thyself. No, there the word means those to whom you're morally connected. Well, who are we morally connected? Well, if you're if you're Jewish, it's to your family, family. your close friends, yeah. and your fellow Jews. Sure. For, how about a Christian? Well, obviously, you're not supposed to harm anybody in the world, but this you have this primary overriding obligation to your family, to right. your close friends, and to your brothers in Christ. Ah. So there are things we owe to fellow Christians that we don't owe to Muslims. I'm sorry, it's, it is simply... it is simply By virtue true. of the word that yeah, Jesus by, used yeah, yeah, yeah. and the word that's yeah. similar in yeah, the Old yeah, Testament. Yeah, and, yeah. You, and, and Greek makes that very yeah, specific. Yeah, yeah. Learning Greek uh, made you understand the word neighbor yeah. in a way that most of us really yeah. don't understand. But in words like justice and justification, love, all of these words, they have context because words don't just have one meaning. They have smell, a touch, a texture, and, and context. And you, you, you really need that. I, um, I never take a translation of the New Testament at face value. Now, the, uh, the Latin, Jerome's somewhat revised Latin versions of the uh, fourth century is, I think, very accurate and reliable. However, there are some places where I don't think he gets it right. Uh, on the basis of the of the Greek, the revival of serious Greek study, and I don't these people they buy they they get an interlinear thing. It's English words on one line and then uh, Greek words right, on I've the seen next. Those, yeah, yeah. I mean, this is this is either learn the language or don't. Right. You. When I was a young man, and I'd be coming out of church, and uh, well, not that young, but uh, when I'm in my twenties, thirties, forties, I'd be coming out and meet the new pastor. And, well, uh, what is it you do? Uh, I'm a Greek professor. 
the look of shock and horror. <laughs> well, uh, of course, it's quite different from the biblical Greek. No, it's not. That's like saying Hemingway's English is really different from uh, Matthew Arnold's English. Well, it's different, but it's the same language. New Testament Greek is simpler, and it violates some grammatical laws. They were writing as well as they could. Yeah. They, it's the same language, and their cluster of meanings with a word like, uh, you know, agape or, or uh, philia, mm-hmm. uh, two love. words meaning love. Again, these words carry with them the not just the burden of what they're translating from Hebrew or those concepts, but also the whole history of the Greek language is being imported. Wow. Really makes me think I probably should have started earlier learning Greek because never I too haven't. late. Maybe we should provide something like that on the website. Maybe something we must consider because Greek being so important to understanding uh, historical figures. And uh, for me, I, I would love to understand uh, It's the, also a very beautiful and moving language. You know, doctor, the great Dr. Johnson once was asked, how much Greek should somebody study? And this was the age in which men wore suits with, with long lace things. He said, Greek, sir, is like lace. No man can get enough of it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, thank you very much for answering these questions. We're going to continue this in a third part. And uh, as always, uh, very interesting and a lot of information to take in. And I'm I'm hoping that everybody's enjoying it uh, out there. Good. Thank you.